This is Looking Back, a program where I'll be remembering highlights, low points, adventures, and lessons learned during my first 75 years. I'm Robert Harmon, and I'll be looking back at an often unplanned but mainly grateful life. I hope you'll join me as I throw in a little history, culture, and observations along the way. Unlike my other podcasts, this story is not about me. It is my imagined recollections of my mother's dog, Rex, who served in World War II as a Royal Air Force police dog. This story is entitled Rex and the Dogs of War. On August 20th, 1940, during the Battle of Britain, while young 18- to 22-year-old Royal Air Force pilots and Spitfires fought a desperate battle over the south of England against German Luftwaffe Messerschmitt 109s, Winston Churchill gave a speech before the House of Commons. In referring to the RAF pilots, he said that never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Under the threat of an imminent invasion by German forces, the entire nation sat by their radios listening for words of hope and optimism. I sat on the floor that evening next to the coal fire alongside Ruby and her parents, Lizzie and Dodd. We were all listening attentively. That evening I was still a civilian and wouldn't join the Royal Air Force and do my bit for the country until 1942. Dodd had spent four years in the trenches of France during World War I, and now his daughter Ruby was getting ready to enlist in the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps, if she could only pass the medical exam. Not a sure thing in her case. Later, I'd gone down to England in 1942 and joined the Royal Air Force. I was never once on a plane. I would have loved the opportunity to fly, but this was not a time for joyrides. That said, some of us smaller ones did go up occasionally and saw aerial bombardments over Germany. I was never that lucky being judged too large for flight. But I was nevertheless perfect for military service, being seen as intelligent, loyal, curious, watchful, obedient, and courageous. In early May 1946, I was released from military service and returned to civilian life. I remember arriving back in Aberdeen by train looking around at all that was familiar, seeing that Aberdeen hadn't suffered many German bombing raids, but one had done lots of damage to Kitty Brewster railway station not far from where I lived. Soon I was home at 10 Mill Street and dashed up the stairs like a lightning bolt, eager to see Ruby once more. 
We'd been apart for about four years. The door was open and I ran in and immediately jumped onto the bed where Ruby was sitting up, expecting a long, happy hug and a celebratory reunion I was stunned and disturbed by her startled reception. Get off the bed, Rex. You'll suffocate the bairn. Bairn? What bairn? Then I realized that there was something writhing and crying beneath me. Then I heard Ruby's concerned voice. Rex, Rex, off the bed. Dogs out. What a welcome home, I thought to myself. I slinked back downstairs, tail between my legs, Woof, woof, I mumbled. So much for the long-imagined hero's welcome. The thing of it was, I felt that I'd played my part in Hitler's downfall. The whole country had. The odd thing for me was, I'd never even seen a German. I wondered what they looked like. Why had we been fighting them? The strangest part of it was that during the war, I'd been told that I was an Alsatian, or, as the American G.I.s would say, a German Shepherd. When I heard that, I was really confused. Had I been on the wrong side? Had I been aiding and abetting the enemy? Why hadn't they taken me prisoner if they knew I was German? I had so many questions, but afraid to voice them, because I'd overheard things like, Careless talk costs lives. Silence is safety. Or free speech doesn't mean careless talk. I just kept my thoughts to myself. Humans are an odd bunch. I remember thinking that for the first time after I got back from the war. I'd spent almost three years with a Royal Air Force policeman who I really liked. His name was Joseph Barron. He was from somewhere in England, and his accent was very different from Ruby and her two brothers, John and George. Joe and I spent that time together guarding an RAF base in Yorkshire, England, after my time in guard dog training school in Cheltenham, Gloucestershire. He was a kind, soft-spoken man, and it didn't surprise me when years later I was shown the postcard he'd sent to Ruby's father. It read, I now have your dog Rex in my care. We have just completed our first patrol and getting along well together. Rest assured, he will have my every care and attention. Yours truly, Joseph Barron. As you can imagine, we spent most of our waking time together. He was well-educated and curious, and seemed to love talking and telling me things. Lots of things. Some of it I understood, and some of it I heard and got confused by. So here we were, guarding an airfield with lots of fighter and bomber planes around us, and he's talking about the unfairness of it all. But not about the unfairness of war, but about the unfairness of it involving me and all us four-legged ones. I remember him saying that dogs were the first animals to be domesticated by humans about 20,000 years ago, while they were still hunter-gatherers. Later, according to Joe, it was that close relationship which helped in the development of animal husbandry, 
with respect to cattle and sheep farming. Dogs were intelligent and faithful, and the humans liked that. But according to Joe, there was a darker side to our long partnership. Joe begrudgingly accepted that humans resolved their differences in ways different from dogs, and oftentimes ended up in bloody, unnecessary conflict. He wasn't being dogmatic, but felt humans could learn a lot from us canines. In dog terms, a dog fight normally entailed two dogs growling and chasing one another until one conceded defeat. No violence or spilled blood was involved. Joe's position was that humans shouldn't co-opt and use dogs in their struggles and wars, and that it had been going on a very long time, because dogs have invariably met the demands of their handlers. I suppose that's one of the downside of our canine faithfulness and desire to please. Apparently, there are existing depictions from between 2400 to 700 BCE of Assyrians using their large mastiffs, the Aksare Malakisi, in their various successful wars against the Babylonians, Egyptians, and Israelites. There seems to have been no recorded use of war dogs by the Greeks, but the Romans bred their own large, ancient, mastiff-like breed called the Moloser. Those dogs were often equipped with spiked collars and trained to fight in pack formation. More recently, according to Joe, during the American Civil War, as Sherman's Union troops moved south, they were allowed to kill any bloodhounds found on plantations and elsewhere. Many of those dogs died. It wasn't the fault of the dogs that they'd been trained to hunt slaves, but nonetheless became casualties of war. I remember Joe saying also that dogs weren't the only four-legged ones used historically in war. Horses had played an influential part in human warfare starting as early as 4000 BCE in Eurasia and had gradually spread west. The invention of horse-drawn chariots around 1500 BCE in Asia also quickly spread west. In the Middle Ages, it was Mongols on horseback who terrorized much of Eastern Europe. One day, Joe started talking about elephants. I'd never heard of such an animal. He then proceeded to tell me that they had four legs and were almost as large as a bus. I couldn't imagine such a thing and thought he must be pulling my leg. He was like that. He told me, for example, that he'd known immediately that I was a Scottish dog by the way I barked and there was me thinking that I was secretly German. Anyway, apparently those gigantic four-legged buses were from India and had been used for a long time in warfare to terrify enemy armies. Elephants could cause panic among foot soldiers, scare horses and trample chariots. I was terrified. Would the Germans use them when they invaded Britain? I hoped not. He also mentioned camels in warfare. I tried not to listen. I had a job to do, and the thought of meeting a four-legged bus one night on patrol 
was more than I could handle. Luckily, none of them ever showed up in Yorkshire. He also told me that some dogs were on the front lines being used as messenger dogs. Some used to pull guns, while others were ambulance dogs, used to find wounded soldiers on the battlefield. Joe said that he and I were having a relatively easy war, but that our roles were still necessary. I barked in agreement. Unfortunately, there were always parades and inspections before going out on our guard detail. The sergeant in charge of our deployment was a real stickler for protocol. Discipline, discipline, you need to maintain discipline, he'd repeat over and over. Joseph and I had to look perfect for every inspection. His uniform had to be impeccable with no stains. It had to be pressed to get rid of the wrinkles and creases. Joe's spats, which covered the top of his boots, had to be cleaned impeccably with white blanco, and his boots had to be polished so that the toe caps were as shiny and gleaming as mirrors. My collar and leash had also to be immaculate, and my coat had to be brushed to a perfect sheen. I always felt sorry for Joe at those times, because any tiny fault, real or imagined, perceived by the duty sergeant, could and would lead him to being penalised. Thankfully, that rarely happened to Joe, since he was so fastidiously clean and tidy, as well as being intimidated by the sergeant. Joe wasn't really a military sort. Before the war, he'd been a well-loved history teacher and would occasionally get letters from former students. He was in his early forties and had missed the first war through sheer luck and timing. This time he thought he'd enlist early and join the service of his choice. He chose the RAF and liked the idea of being a military policeman. We were well fed, I got lots of exercise and spent lots of time outdoors. We'd walk around the perimeter fence looking for, I really never knew what we were looking for, and whatever it was we were looking for, we never found or saw any. Needless to say, I wasn't the only guard dog helping keep the airfield secure. I'm not sure how many of us there were, but occasionally, when we weren't on duty, we got to run around a large area far from the planes and never when they were taking off or landing. Mainly we just happily chased each other or tussled over a stick that one of us had found. It was fun to just run around being free for a little while. I remember getting to chase rabbits now and again if there was one around. They were always too fast for me and refused to run in a straight line, but it was lots of fun to run flat out for a few minutes now and again. It always got my tail wagging. As I said, I never knew if we were looking for horses, camels, or elephants. We never even found a hole in the fence. I'm not saying I was bored, but honestly, I never thought I did that much. Joe would tell me what other dogs had done not long ago. Apparently, the countries currently fighting had been in another war about 20 years before, where millions were killed, including lots of us four-legged ones. He mentioned that about 50,000 dogs 
had been involved in World War I and that about 7,000 had died. While I sat there feeling sorry for all the dead dogs, he added that 8 million horses and donkeys had died during that conflict. I'm not very good with numbers, but I could tell by the sound of Joe's voice and his demeanour that that was a really big number. I really liked Joe, and I knew he was fond of me, but there were times when none of what he said made any sense. Here was this man, this very kind man, who never yelled at me, loved spending time with me, and yet he was one of the two-legged ones who didn't seem to be able to agree about lots of things. For me, resolving a disagreement usually involved a bark or two, or a throaty growl, and if that didn't work, a resultant chase. It's true that there were times when dogs would show their canines in an act of aggression, and on rare occasions, a quick, heated attack could ensue, resulting in minor injuries. Those, however, were extremely rare events, I thought. I had never been attacked or wanted to attack another, two-legged or four-legged, but it seemed that the two-legged ones had an extremely long history of fighting each other, resulting in the deaths of huge numbers of their own kind. This always mystified me, because not only were they capable of mass slaughter, they were also smart, made lots of incredible things like fireplaces, tall buildings, airplanes that could fly, make lovely music, and be capable of the most tender affection to one another, and those of us they called pals. Maybe this is too dogmatic, but I just wish they wouldn't involve us four-legged ones in their conflicts. It was 1948, and the war was over. I had been lovingly reunited with Ruby and her bairn, who was now two years old, and called Robert after his da. Those three had moved into a prefab house earlier that year with all mod cons, and I had remained living with Ruby's parents, Lizzie and Dodd, in their small upstairs garret, still with no electricity, running water or indoor toilets. I was now twelve, old for a Scottish-German dog like me. I could feel the stiffness in my joints just as Dodd could feel the beginnings of cancer and tuberculosis in his body, which was to take him nine years later. We were up at the top of the brae, enjoying the accustomed, meagre warmth that comes from a northeast of Scotland's sun. He sitting on the dike, me at his side. We had both done our parts in keeping Britain safe in time of need, and now quietly content in each other's company. The sun was going doing in more ways than one, but I couldn't complain. I'd had good days and bad ins, but mostly I'd enjoyed them. What more could you ask for? This has been a Sauna Sound Studio production, with support from all the little bees up in the trees, folks who sneeze and bend their knees, with a cat's meow 
and the dogs bow wow in old time Indiana.